So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. When Rangina Hamidi's father was assassinated in 2011, she thought about leaving Afghanistan for good. You'll remember her story from our episode about the narco kings of Kandahar. She was born in Kandahar, but her family escaped the Soviets when she was just a child. She returned as an adult to put her American education to use, and her father followed close behind. He became mayor of Kandahar City. His assassination devastated Rangina, especially because she believes he was a victim of Western-backed warlords, not the Taliban. I wish they had the courage to at least own it, right? We have a lot of speculation still of who might be behind it, but no investigation really took place. After that, she needed to go back to the U.S. to escape the war that had taken her father from her. Of course, I don't wish this upon anybody, really. What, what I and my family experienced, I don't, want, I don't want to wish it upon anybody. But she couldn't shake the feeling that she had more to do in Afghanistan and that her father wouldn't want her to quit on their homeland. And something in me told me that, no, he would want me to come back. Kandahar had changed in the years that Rangin had been away. The Canadians had left in 2011, and the Obama administration had sent in a surge of American troops in an attempt to pacify the countryside. Just as Rangina was coming back in late 2014, the Americans were pulling their ground troops. The plan was to hand over responsibility for security to the Afghan National Army, which would be supported by American air power. And many Afghans, especially in Kabul, decried the pullout, but not Rangina. And I remember having some not very internationally acceptable interviews at that time where I said, I'm not opposing to the drawdown of troops. I remember some of my friends or networks in Kabul reached out to me, particularly women, saying, how are you so irresponsible for saying that you support the drawdown of troops? And and my response to them was, too, that if I knew that the presence of the international troops was going to help my people and my country and my situation, of course I would support it. But what I saw, what I experienced personally to the point where my own father was sacrificed in this unjust war, I said, why would I support a mission that has no good end? By 2016, Rangina decided it was time to leave Kandahar. My daughter turned seven, and I was in a part of my life where I said, 
the only girl that I have, and it happens to be a girl, thank God, how can I sacrifice or, or play with her future, and, and particularly in education, by keeping her in Kandahar? So she decided to move to Kabul. Up until then, Kabul city had remained an island of stability in an increasingly violent country. And it wasn't long before a friend of hers came up with an idea that would lead to Rangina making history. Why not open a school together? My response to him immediately was, but I don't know anything about education. He said, I need a manager, not an education expert. It would be an international school that tried to bridge a Western curriculum with Islamic principles and Afghan values. And so for the sake of Zara, my daughter, I had no choice but to accept because having moved to Kabul, I wasn't interested in working with these fancy big organizations like the UN or other international organizations that were present. The school was a success. Her daughter was the first student, but within two years, almost 120 children were enrolled. Most of them were from Kabul's elite families. And when COVID hit, Rangina's school was one of the few that was able to start up online education. And then, in April 2020, she received a very unexpected invitation. I received a call from president's office saying, President Ghani wants to speak with you, and you're the principal of Mizan International School. And I said, yes, and I said, what about it? And he's like, well, about the school. Duh. <laughs> so I said, okay. Ashraf Ghani, Afghanistan's president, wanted to talk to her. And he wanted more than just her advice. So I accepted the invitation, spoke to him. And at the end of the phone interview initially, he proposed that I join his cabinet. The president of Afghanistan wanted Rangina to be his minister of education, to be the first woman to ever hold the post. But to do so, she would be joining a government full of the kinds of drug traffickers and warlords that she despised that she blames for killing her own father. I was surprised when I called my mother for advice. She was in the States at that time. She said, Rangina, I know that this is hard because we've given one sacrifice as a family. But she said, but I also understand that if your father had not joined and made the changes that he did, and you don't join and hopefully bring changes to things that don't work, then we have no right to complain. So Rangina said yes. And in some ways, just by taking that job, it could be argued that Rangina was embodying the aspirations that the West claimed to have for Afghanistan. A woman tasked with bringing education to all of Afghanistan's children, especially girls. Something that would have been unthinkable before the war. But the months that were to come would have Rangina asking a question that Afghans and the rest of the world have been wrestling with ever since. What was all of this for? So many thousands of people had been killed during the war. Did they die in vain? Or could there be a lasting legacy that comes out of all of this violence? Afghanistan today is a forgotten country. It disappeared from the headlines just weeks after the Taliban takeover. But the countries who spilled so much blood and treasure there for 20 years still haven't asked themselves the hard questions. What did we achieve? Was it all worth it? But what's not uncertain 
is the human catastrophe unfolding in Afghanistan today. A country that has lost so many lives to war is now at risk of losing more to starvation. I'm Archie Mann, and from Canadaland, this is Commons. One of the strangest aspects about the war in Afghanistan is that the stated purpose of the war kept changing. Moshin Amin, an Afghan writer and commentator who now lives in Canada, says that Afghans are still perplexed by it all. You went to Afghanistan, still we don't know why you went there. What was your purpose, right? If you wanted to defeat Al-Qaeda and Taliban, you did that in 2002. So from 2002 onwards, what was the purpose of your occupation or of your invasion in Afghanistan? Stephen Sademan is a political scientist who has written two books about Canada's war in Afghanistan. And he says that there was surprisingly little self-reflection about our war aims, even at the time. We're starting to ask the tough questions in 2022 now because the mission ended for us in 2014 and it ended in failure in 2021. And so now people are saying, well, what went wrong with Afghanistan? Well, we should have been asking that question when we were there. What were we accomplishing? What were we trying to accomplish? It's clear that immediately after 2001, the goal was to deny al-Qaeda a base of operations. But soon, that shifted towards supporting the newly constructed Afghan government. And when Canada took over responsibility for Kandahar, the purpose was to pacify the region, counterinsurgency. But publicly, it was never framed that way. And there were entirely two different conversations going on in government where the military was trying to win a war and the government, what was then the Foreign Affairs and International Trade Department, but is now Global Affairs Canada, and the aid agencies were all focused mostly on meeting their benchmarks. Those benchmarks were oddly disconnected from anything we conventionally think of as war. Building 50 schools, fixing the Dala Dam in order to aid irrigation, and vaccinating children for polio. Those were all admirable things to attempt, though we never did fix the dam, and even many of those schools were unoccupied shortly after we left. But many places in the world could use more schools, better infrastructure, and more vaccinations. It's unimaginable that we would invade and occupy a country to try to provide those things. But it's not entirely clear what those things had to do with winning the war in Afghanistan or building a self-sustaining government in Afghanistan. We should have been asking generals those tough questions about... How does your mission, is it anything more than mowing the grass? What are you accomplishing? Who are we working with in Kandahar? How corrupt are they? And how are we mitigating the effects of corruption? I think we knew then a lot of the things that we know now, but we weren't really being asked those questions. I honestly don't know whether being vaccinated against polio is going to cause somebody to support us against the Taliban or find the government to be functional. Because the whole idea was to try to get the people to support the government. I think the bigger challenge is we set up these goals, these signature projects, and it was mostly to sell the effort back home, but I'm not sure any of these efforts were really doing that. And perhaps the best example of Canada's particular failures in Afghanistan is the Sarposa prison. The prison was in Kandahar. It was where many Taliban were held after they were captured. And one of Canada's big initiatives in the province was to train prison guards. Numerous Canadian corrections officers went to Afghanistan in that effort.
And we were so focused rightly on the human rights violations that we were trying to train the Afghan wardens and prison guards to treat their prisoners better. But in 2008, the Taliban struck. The Taliban were smart. They blew up our fence and then a lot of people were able to escape. After the prison break, Canada vowed to help rebuild the prison. Canadian officials even went so far as to describe the prison break as a blessing in disguise because it would allow them to build a better, more impervious gate. And we did. But that didn't stop the Taliban. In 2011, just as Canadians were set to leave, there was another prison break. The second time, they dug a tunnel from outside into the prison. And A, that should have been detected. And B, what, 500 people more or less got out over the course of the night, which meant that nobody was walking a beat to determine where the folks were going. And it seemed like the folks that we were training were complicit with it. And the funny thing about this is that the second prison break happened shortly after one of the last quarterly reports talked about how successful our training of the prison guards were going, which suggests a real contradiction. All of the money in the training that Canada put into Sarposa prison didn't amount to much. After years of effort, the prison couldn't perform its most basic function, keeping people inside. Unlike many of the people we spoke to for this series, Stephen Seidemann does believe that Canada was able to achieve some important objectives. When we look back at the mission, Kandahar was the target. It was the homeland for the Taliban. During our time, we created a bubble of security for the people who were in the bubble. And yes, there were IEDs and there were other kinds of attacks, but the economy improved, life expectancy improved. All that stuff got better while we were there. And so we might have gotten confused about how our temporary presence created a better reality for a self-sustaining Afghan government. Because as we left and as everybody else left, that bubble popped and that security went away and those markets went away and that education went away. We weren't willing to stay there for very long. And that basic reality shaped everything else. And that is one of the primary ways we could look at our time in Kandahar. We held places like Kandahar City and gave people a chance to build lives for themselves. There's a narrative that runs counter to that, that by trying to hold on to these urban areas and population centers, NATO forces would bomb and raid rural Afghanistan. Many, many civilians were killed, even more lost their homes or their livelihoods, or they were simply humiliated. And that was what led to the growth of the Taliban. I put that alternative scenario to Saidman. The creation of the bubble around the major population areas. You know, the idea of population-centric warfare is you protect the people. Well, that has consequences for the places where the people aren't. And that means either you're ceding the, those areas to the Taliban, which means that that's not great, or you're using less precise tools against them because if you're not near them, you have a real hard time identifying who's who and you're making a lot of mistakes. It's really hard to evaluate the mission in Afghanistan because we were doing harm and we were doing good at the same time. What's the balance of those two things? Were we better than having the Taliban run the place? I would suggest the next five years can tell us a little bit about whether we, we were better occupiers than the Taliban are. Moshin Amin says that at its heart, this was the basic problem with the war. There was always this dichotomy or contrast in treating different parts of Afghanistan. For instance, like urban areas, their life standards improved. But for rural areas, it was devastating. So this dichotomy or these two different worlds started to emerge in the last uh, 20 years. And in some ways, 
life in rural Afghanistan got even worse in the years after Canada left. The Americans increased the number of air raids on suspected Taliban positions after 2014, resulting in more and more civilian casualties. Just last year, reporters from the New York Times visited villages in Kandahar to try to figure out how many civilians had been killed in specific drone strikes. In Bandi Timur, they found that most households had lost an average of five family members. But because the Afghan government was so absent from those areas, there were no death certificates that the reporters could view. Instead, they had to confirm the deaths by visiting the many, many graveyards that covered the countryside. When Rangina Hamidi was put forward as the new Minister of Education for Afghanistan in 2020, she didn't know that her tenure would only last 14 months. In my little time at the ministry as a woman in Afghanistan, in a time where there was so much going on every single minute and every single day, I would have to summarize it in saying that I gave it my best, the best that I had and the best that I could give. She says that she tried to create policy with ordinary Afghan children in mind. While that sounds like the bare minimum, many of her fellow ministers use their positions solely to enrich themselves and their families. I started to think of minister's office connected to the classroom in first grade in a little village in the middle of nowhere. If it is going to benefit that child, I will approve it. But if it is to benefit an MP, the family members of an MP, the children of some tribal elder, leader, gun lord, warlord sitting, you know, enjoying privileges of international contracts with various militaries. If it is to help and support anything but the children of Afghanistan, I will stand up against it. And Rangina claims that this egalitarianism was one of the reasons she lost a vote of confidence in the Afghan parliament. I prayed two rakats of prayer of gratitude. The second that it was announced that I did not get the vote of confidence, because quite honestly, that corrupt parliament, majority corrupt. I mean, there was a handful of people, maybe about 10, 15 maximum, men and women who I do respect and who I think were quite honest in their endeavor of representation of the people. But the great majority of the parliament, men and women, were corrupt officials who cared nothing about Afghanistan or its future, whose only purpose in those seats was to run and manage their own businesses and basically command government officials to sign contracts that would benefit them personally. And I refused to do that to the best of my ability that I could. It cost me that vote, but I am so proud of myself that I was able to stand up against it. Despite the fact that she lost the parliamentary vote, President Ashraf Ghani decided to keep her in the position as acting minister. But that wouldn't last long. Rangina watched and waited as the last American troops were withdrawing from Afghanistan last summer. Even in August, as the Taliban rapidly took control of much of the country, she continued to come into work. And that's where she was on August 15th the day the Taliban entered Kabul. 
I was in my office. I went diligently as I, you know, as I did every day. She was working on a draft of a national education policy, which would have been the country's first during the occupation years. Among other things, I completed that. It was in its final edit. It was on my desk, reading the final version to sign, to send to President Ashraf Ghani for a final approval before we could publicize it to the country. And by 12.15, my chief of staff came to my office and with worries in his eyes, looked at me and said, Madam Minister, there's not a single person left in this ministry. I think it is not safe for you to remain here. I think you need to leave. I looked outside through the windows to see literal chaos on the streets with traffic jam and people running left and right. And I had nothing left to argue uh, with him uh, because literally there was nobody left in the ministry anymore. So I packed whatever I had in the office, my purse, my computer, two of my daughter's pictures, and a teacup that was given as a gift to me, hand-painted by one of my older students at Mizan. And um, I walked out knowing that I probably was never going to return to that ministry. And as we drove out of the ministry, the gates were wide open. Out of the 60 security personnel that were given to the ministry, not a single one of them was present. And uh, we left with the gates still wide open because there was nobody to shut the gates after we left. Rangina Hamidi. Afghanistan's first female education minister, a woman who blamed that same government for her father's murder, had been one of the last officials to stay at their post that day. Most of the cabinet members should have been in their offices still, like I was. But I later learned that many had fled already. And then I still didn't believe that it was, that it, everything had fallen until the night, that same night when... Uh, the news made it out that uh, President Ashraf Ghani had uh, left in the planes. Initially, I was angry when I heard of the news. But I think soon after, within minutes, I realized, I said, what could he have done? Rangina vowed to stay in the country, even to work with the Taliban if necessary. She was one of the very few government officials who met with Taliban leaders to see if she could keep her job so that she could try to make sure girls could get an education under the new regime. While they assured her that they would eventually provide girls with an education, once they could ensure the system complied with their harsh version of Sharia, they told her she would no longer be in charge of the ministry. But they asked her to speak for the regime, to reassure the West that they weren't the boogeymen that they had been made out to be. And that was the day Rangina decided to flee. Her family eventually made it to Arizona, where she lives today. Moshin Amin, who you heard from at the top of the show, was watching the Taliban take over from Canada. It happened so rapidly and so quickly, and I was actually really concerned for my family. My wife and kids and parents and brothers and sisters, they were in Afghanistan, and I didn't know whether street fighting or urban warfare could start. His biggest fear was that Kabul would descend into urban warfare, the kind that had destroyed much of the city in the 1990s. Luckily, that didn't happen. Instead, Afghanistan began to face a very different kind of crisis. The economy has collapsed. The people are starving. And because the Taliban are considered a terrorist organization, 
Afghanistan is now under crippling economic sanctions. And worse, the Biden administration froze billions of dollars that belonged to the Afghan Central Bank, completely cutting the country off from the global financial system. Current situation is uh, uh, devastating. It's uh, economic warfare, basically, waged by the international community against Afghans. Most international aid agencies have left the country. And this is especially devastating since the Afghan economy had been built by the West to be almost entirely dependent on foreign aid. Prices for basic foodstuffs have skyrocketed. According to UN estimates, 95% of Afghans don't have enough to eat. Half are facing acute food shortages. A million children are facing malnutrition. And ordinary Afghans are being punished. And they don't know why they are being punished. Because they have nothing to do with the Taliban. I remember one friend, he uh, reached out to me that if there are ways, if they can send 1,200 US dollars to Afghanistan for a surgery of a 10-year-old child. Because they exhausted their one-month withdrawal limit and they have to wait for another month. And the child is basically suffering and the doctors told him that he has to undergo a surgery. So imagine this is the level of devastation that Afghans are undergoing. And according to the Wall Street Journal, some Afghans have begun to sell their own organs in order to get money to feed their children. I asked Harjit Sajjan, Canada's Minister of International Development, if the Canadian government would be willing to drop sanctions against Afghanistan in light of the humanitarian catastrophe. Well, first of all, let's not forget what the Taliban, they're still, they are a recognized terrorist organization, right? Um, also the fact that when the Taliban was in power, the stoning of women in the stadiums, um, um, arbitrary killings that, that were going on. And these are some of the things that we're not going to uh, forget. And we need to make sure that we... Um, hold people to account. But at the same time, our role is not to, uh, we're not here to deal with the Taliban. Uh, We want to help the Afghan people. And that's exactly what we've done. And Canada has pledged some aid money to Afghans. But the problem is that it's still illegal for any Canadian entity to deal with the Taliban. And considering that they are the government of Afghanistan, that makes it nearly impossible for independent aid agencies to help Afghans in any way. And while I have some sympathy for what Sajjan was saying, the Taliban have committed numerous atrocities, I find it hard to see how the economic isolation the West is forcing upon Afghanistan doesn't amount to a form of collective punishment. Just last week, a devastating earthquake hit eastern Afghanistan. More than a thousand people were killed. Here's Moshin again. This was the most devastating natural disaster in the country's uh, recent history. You know, destroyed entire villages. People from outside, from overseas, they could not send remittances, money to the country due to the sanctions. And I have tried, many of my friends tried, we couldn't send money. And uh, they were rejected. And I'm sure a lot of people, millions of people wanted to help their fellow countrymen But they could not. And the Taliban, too, are failing Afghans. Despite promises they made during peace negotiations with the United States, teenage girls are still not allowed to go to school. And in many parts of the country, women are only allowed outdoors if accompanied by a male guardian. 
moderate factions within the Taliban have been losing out to the hardliners. And Moshin believes that the sanctions are only helping the most extreme Talibs. And uh, given that uh, the international community miscalculated the situation once again, they thought that if they could pressurize the Taliban, then they would force them to provide some sort of concessions. And that backfired, that basically reinforced the argument of the hardliners. The hardliners told the moderate ones that no matter what you do, the international community will blacklist you, will sanction you, will punish you. So let us to do our job. Despite all of this, Motion is still hopeful. I have remained optimistic for, for the last 15 years. And I, I will remain optimistic and I, I will maintain this optimism about Afghanistan. And given that the war has ended, that's a great thing. And that in and of itself should force us to be optimistic. Afghanistan and the international community and superpowers, they have tried war, aggression, and violence for the last 43 years. They did not achieve anything. Basically, we are back to square one. Afghans need your support. Don't leave them in this uncertainty after trying so many violent things. The United States alone dropped 85,000 bombs on Afghanistan. And they killed people, tortured people, a lot of good work also done, but it has been reversed now. And at least the amount of money that you spend, the taxpayer money in Afghanistan on war, whatever is left in whatever you have committed, at least spend that on development. At least spend that on the welfare and the well-being of Afghans. So you leave a good legacy. You leave an impression to the people of Afghanistan that the West is not at war with Afghanistan. So after 20 years of occupation and 40 years of war, what is Afghanistan left with? An economy that's in shambles, half-built infrastructure, another refugee crisis, and the Taliban once again in charge. And there's one very hard lesson that I think we need to learn from this war. Every time more Western soldiers were sent into an area, things got worse. The Canadian surge into Kandahar resulted in more mayhem. So did the American surge that followed. Even when we thought we were helping, we weren't. Violence only begat more violence. Many groups share the blame for the fate of Afghanistan. The Americans and NATO, Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, Pakistan's intelligence service, the old warlords and the new ones. It's hard to think of another country that has been meddled with more by outside forces in recent history than Afghanistan. And now, at the end of it, millions of Afghans are dead. Millions have fled, and millions more would flee if the rest of the world cared enough about them to take them in. Despite billions upon billions of dollars that were poured into it, it is the poorest country on the planet. The majority of the people are at risk of starvation. Their economy has been destroyed. And despite that, the plight of Afghans barely even makes headlines anymore. They've been made invisible. Rangina Hamidi is still mourning for her country, a country she has now had to flee from twice. With the sacrifices of 
individuals like my father, and I wish my father was the only one. You know, for 40 years in Afghanistan, we've been giving sacrifice of life. Some lives, unfortunately, don't matter. And the lives of Afghanistan, the ugly reality to me now is that we never really mattered. And for 20 years that I committed my adult working life to working in Afghanistan and believing that things can be different for the future of the Afghan citizens, the men and the women and the children, I guess I was stupid enough too to believe that when world leaders make promises that they mean it, when in actuality, we now know that they don't. If you truly believe in these principles and values that you have set for yourself in your society, in your country, then why do you go and align with the very people who work against such principles? For 20 years, the US military, the international community's military promoted and supported murderers, killers, people who only played a lip service to democracy and bringing down a whole nation of 40 million people who only began to dream to hope for a better future. How can you sleep at night and, and, and tell yourself that you are a truly a global leader? Because in my opinion, that is not the definition of a global leader. Because a global leader is someone who, if he or she believes in the principles for themselves, they would wish it upon others as well. If I was any of those leaders in those positions who have made those decisions, I would honestly be extremely ashamed of myself today. Rangina has been watching the war in Ukraine unfold, and she finds it hard to not think of the parallels between what's happening now and the fate that befell her country. I feel horrible for President Zelensky and Ukraine and the people who are suffering at the hands of this ugly and unjust war, a war that we as Afghans experienced in 1978-79 when Russia invaded Afghanistan. However, I do cringe a bit inside when I look at the reality and the hypocrisy of the world that about 40 years ago, Afghanistan as a nation and Afghanistan as a people or Afghans as a people were also applauded and supported. They were the warriors, you know, they were the freedom fighters, the Mujahideen freedom fighters that were financially and militarily supported by the CIA and ISI in Pakistan and among other allies in the world. Those same elements have resulted in becoming the very warlords that were engaged in the destruction of Afghanistan in the past 20 years. I just hope that the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian nation don't experience what Afghanistan did. And it's hard not to escape the feeling that history is repeating itself, not just because the Taliban are governing again. But just like in the years before 9-11, there is an insurgency in the north against the Taliban, this time led by Ahmed Massoud, the son of Ahmed Shah Massoud, the legendary guerrilla fighter. Some American politicians are already asking the U.S. to do what they did before, to send money and guns into Afghanistan to fight the Taliban. For the international community, to consider supporting either financially or through ammunitions again 
to continue yet another phase of a civil war in Afghanistan, I really want to challenge, really seriously decide what you guys want to do with these people. You know, when I get angry about men and their their love for killing and destruction, and, and I'm sorry, but I have to say this, war is a game of men, men who love to show their power through ammunition on their back, ammunition in their hands, and celebrating power through killing and more killing. And of course, who pays the price? Innocent children of poor people left and right. You never see a warlords or a drug lords or a war monsters own son or own brother or own self being killed in the front lines. It's always the children of other poor people who give the lives of innocent children fighting on one end or another. Canada and the West have an obligation to help Afghans in any way that they can. Whether it's economic aid, easing of sanctions, or fast-tracking refugees, Afghans can't afford to wait any longer. Canada may not want to discuss the legacy of our war in Afghanistan, but Afghans are living with that legacy every day. My country, my country's people are starving not because they are lazy, not because they don't wish to better their lives, but they are now considered by the UN as a nation on the brink of starvation because international actors made horrible decisions and the Afghan people have to pay a price for it. The war in Afghanistan might be over, but the war against Afghans continues to this day. That's your episode of Commons. If you like this episode, please support us. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com and leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This is our final episode in our series on the war in Afghanistan. Thank you so much for listening. This episode relied on work done by Graham Smith, Steve Sademan, Moshin Amin, Sharif Sharaf, Azmat Khan at the New York Times, Suna Engel Rasmussen at the Wall Street Journal, and many, many others. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CommonsPod. 
You can also email me, arshi at canadaland.com. This episode was produced by me and Jordan Cornish, with additional production by Noor Azria. Our executive producer is Kieran Oudshorn, and our music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. Click on the link in your show notes, or go to commonspodcast.com. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.